Welcome to From the Resort Podcast. Today is the 11th of December 2020. Uh, this is episode number eight in, in this particular series. Uh, again, we have uh, another member of the Queenstown uh, Rotary Club. Uh, here we have Jim Hewitt, who is now retired, uh, has moved to Queenstown more recently. He has a business background, uh, managing companies in crisis and uh, turning those companies around. Uh, and uh, also those companies will either thrive or, or be you know, sold on to somebody else. Uh, welcome along to the podcast, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for t- uh, taking part. And I just thought you might have a bit of an interesting story to be able to tell our listeners, uh, a bit of a different perspective and uh, be able to, um, I guess, bring some insight with some stories that you may have back in the States. Uh, tell us about where, whereabouts were you born and where did you grow up early in life? Right. Well, I was born in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, sounds like an unlikely place. But my father, this is after World War II, was doing a PhD in petroleum engineering um, at the University of Oklahoma, and there are two big oil and gas, you know, science universities uh, in Oklahoma and Texas, and actually Colorado School of Mines, I would say, is a third. And um, anyway, that's where I was born. After that, we moved to Dallas briefly, and then to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where my dad was uh, led a research team at Gulf Research and Development in Harmerville. Gulf. For those who don't know, it was one of the what they call the Seven Sisters, the big major international oil companies with you know BP and and Chevron and Exxon and Shell and so forth. Um, so and then I moved to London when I was 16 years old. My dad uh, went to work there and led um, the U.S. side of Kuwait Oil Company. It was half owned by Gulf and half owned by BP, and it's been a very interesting uh, summer in in Kuwait. And ended up with you know a few few very close um, Palestinian friends. A lot of Palestinians had fled Palestine. It was we entered there right after the Six Day War, mm-hmm. uh, which is a chaotic time um, in in the Middle East. And uh, I can remember my father um, sending agents into the war zone to try to find relatives of Palestinians that worked for him. They're engineers and the local the dentists in the company and you know accountants, all sorts of professionals. It was a different time. It was a very westernized kind of place. I mean, you had your nomads, but all the people that were in the cities looked and dressed just like we did and you know, drove cars and so forth. Anyway, I left um, home and I graduated from high school. Well, at the I guess, Mer- before we sort of get too far down the track, I mean, what, um, can you remember what sort of hobbies and sports that you sort of what, enjoyed as a youngster growing up? Well, um, I played drums, and there's a thing in the United States that high schools and colleges called marching bands, which are a lot of fun if you've never seen one. They, they usually perform at the halftime of um, big football games, but anymore the talking heads take over and you don't get to see them much. But I, that was something I did was a lot of fun. Um, uh, I played football early in, in high school. Um, that was really you know, about, about it. Um, I've always enjoyed uh, a lot of reading, study, and history, and London was a great place for that. I would walk it up Sunday, Saturday morning, Walk all day long all over London, just wherever I went, you know, so there's you, always new things to see. So you sort of, as far as London, you, you used to obviously walk around and see, see the sights, take it all yeah. in. Um, so with London, what was the first job that you would have had as a child or as a 16-year-old when you, when you were in London? Well, I, I couldn't get a visa to work there, so I didn't. Um, I was expected to, to study. The first job I ever had was when I was in uh, college and I delivered pizzas okay. um, and for a very, very clever man who had a 
pizza shop. And of course, in those days, there was no internet, but he had a Rolodex and he would write down people's names and everything he could remember from them. And I would watch him, somebody call in and say, who is this? And he'd be flying through his Rolodex and he'd say, oh, how's your, how's your, how's your girlfriend, Mary? Your mom and dad still living? So, and everybody thought this guy was their best friend. The other trick he taught me is he'd give me four or five pizzas during finals, and I'd just go in the dorm and call out a name, and if nobody came, I'd say, anybody want to buy a pizza? <laughs> Sell them all. <laughs> the really clever businessman. You know, those are the people that are down, you know, on the ground doing business. It's not terribly theoretical, but it's amazing, you know, how smart they can be. And this guy was, uh, was Jewish, and his uh, girlfriend was a, a short Mexican woman with a limp. <laughs> they were quite a couple. Um, after... After um, I, I then uh, left the University of Oklahoma, where I was there, and went to Ohio State, where um, the woman I'm married to today was studying physical therapy, and that That's was the lovely Cora. Yeah, my wife Cora, and uh, one of us needed to move if we were going to be together. And the physical therapy school was in the School of Medicine, and at the University of Oklahoma, that wasn't in Norman, where the main campus is, about 35, 40 miles away in Oklahoma City. But at Ohio State, the uh, hospital was adjacent to the campus. So that's the only reason I went there. I had a wonderful experience there. I got a great education. Um, I was in an honors program, and economics was my, was my major. Um, when I got out of college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, so I went to law school. <laughs> and uh, went to law school at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. It's you know, one of, one of the top ten law schools in the United States. Um, so I was very, very fortunate to get in there. Um, you know, ten years ago, I could never, I would never have gotten in. You know, it was so competitive. But now, you know, after the 08 recession and now COVID, it's, it's, I could probably get in once again. But while I was there, I also did an MBA. So I had pretty much the, uh, the aura of a, of a professional student. So I, I finally stopped studying. I, I had three degrees, and um, I left and went into the practice of law, and I was practicing tax law, oh, which um, was, uh, I was getting bored with it, but also I was writing tax opinions for things in the United States called tax shelters, which were ways to um, legally avoid paying income taxes, or I should say more like, more like postponing it, sometimes as much as 10 years. But um, those all went away after Ronald Reagan's Tax Reform Act of 86. But anyway, that was well after I left. And I, I met people in the oil and gas business. And, um, you know, it's kind of like the high-tech businesses today. People were getting into it everywhere. Everybody was trying to, you know, swinging hard, trying to hit the ball over the fence, as we say in baseball. Um, so it was real easy. And people were making a lot of money, and some people were going broke. So I left and went into that business, and um, not long after I went into that business, I borrowed $100,000, which would probably be more equivalent to a half a million U.S. today, I mean with inflation from 1982, mm-hmm. invested in the company, and we were doing great. Um, we had offices in Richmond, Virginia, where I was, Denver, Colorado, and Houston, Texas. And um, the price of oil in 1982 broke, and it fell from about $40 a barrel all the way down to 11 And many of the things we were doing were, um, the, the, that was below the marginal cost. So we were losing money with every barrel of oil we pumped. And um, scrambled around. I got out of that, that um, business. We moved it to um, Denver. Got some infusion from some people who insisted on taking control, as you would imagine. So I was out with nothing to show for it, $100,000 in debt. So it's probably the lowest point. 
in my life, but um, I had worked through the troubles in that company, and it struck me, you know, maybe there's a, a business or a profession here. And uh, one of the directors of the company knew a Swiss bank that was looking for somebody to run an oil company um, in Richmond, Virginia, that was mostly operated in the Appalachian Basin of West Virginia and Western Virginia. And it was in trouble. And uh, that was the first real workout turnaround crisis management gig, gig that I had. It, um, there's a real interesting story behind that for somebody, you know, 30, I guess I was 32, 33 at the time. Um, I'll take a little time telling you this because I think it's, it's a fascinating yeah. story. It, um, the Swiss bank was Saracen Bank out of Basel, Switzerland, and it was what's called a family-owned bank. But, you know, the partners were, had unlimited liability. They owned the bank. They were all family members um, by birth or by marriage. And every one of them was enormously wealthy. There's probably maybe a dozen of them. And the old man who was at the top of the heap was a guy named Alfred Saracen. And they had hired a German guy named Hans Riepel to run their bond operation, which they located in London to avoid Swiss taxes, but also that's where the action was. So I took over this company. I was assigned to uh, report to, to Hans Riepel in Germany. And uh, the company had been put together um, by a guy named Zilke. And he had disappeared, and it was pretty clear that the things he had told the investors were false. And um, so Hans and I hired a private investigator that ran this guy down. And here's how he got into the Swiss bank. There was um, a smaller bank run by a guy who was a sweet man with a great intellect, but he never should have been in business, and he inherited a bank in, uh, I can't remember where it was, I think it was Zurich. And this guy, Zilka, um, professional criminal, targeted him and said, you may not remember this, but uh, right after World War II, when your father was um, on loan from the Austrian government to the United States to work on the Marshall Plan, we used to play together in the Wilshire Hotel in the hallways. The guy couldn't quite remember that, but he had so many details and facts. I met you then. And he said, but we've come a long way. The Silkas, we're Polish, and we know the Pope, John Paul. <laughs> and, you know, through the church, we've managed to be steered to some very, very lucrative mining operations and concessions, and we're real rich, and I've got these companies. Wouldn't you like to invest in them? So he took the guy, and the guy, I mean, Swiss banks, you know, will invest their customers' money. And um, so a lot of client money was invested in three companies, a mining company in, in uh, California that later I moved to Reno, a, uh, a liquor importing business, and then this last one, Merrill Natural Resources. Well, it turned out Zilka had been living with his parents, and he'd been a real estate agent until the day he decided to pull his sting and uh, convince this guy to invest all this money in these businesses, which he hadn't a clue how to run. So they crashed and burned. So... Hans Riepel and I wanted the banks to go after this guy and um, not only sue him, but, you know, get, uh, get the authorities involved and perhaps file criminal charges against him. And uh, after some consideration, the people in, in Basel came back and said, we don't want to do that because we don't want it in the papers that a bank that we bought um, and now own invested client money in this bunch of garbage. Yeah. You know, that would really stain our reputation. Well... They were so concerned about being in the paper. And then the strangest thing happened. Um, 
in the United States, it's against the law to um, trade securities and what's called inside information. It's inside of trading, yeah. Yep. Well, there was a company called Santa Fe Drilling, and uh, it was about to, I think, announce major oil and gas find or something. It was going to be really big. And a two, starting two days before that announcement, people were trading options, options to purchase the stock like mad. And it was just a huge red flag. And the Security Exchange Commission said, whoever's doing that had inside information. Mm. Well, they tracked a bunch of the trades back to uh, Panama City, Panama. And from there, they tracked them back to Saracen Bank, <laughs> of all things. Yeah. And uh, a number of the family members, um, including Alfred Saracen's girlfriend, had, had profited from this. Mm. So they ended up in the front page of the Wall Street Journal with this article about what had happened. And it has kind of an interesting end. They were afraid to come to the United States to meet with me and, and you know, talk <laughs> about the businesses. They were afraid that they'd be, um, you know, they'd be locked up and told, you know, you're not leaving the country until you sit down and, and we take your deposition under oath as to what happened and who's mm -hmm. involved. But Alfred Saracen was a very wealthy, powerful man in Swiss banking and in the international banking. And he knew um, Paul Volcker, who was chairman of the board of the, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States. Uh, you know, and this was a time, a great turmoil. Volcker's the guy who drove interest rates in the United States up to 13 14% to get um, inflation up. Well, the charges were dropped against the Swiss, and I was later told that the reason that happened is that um, Alfred Saracen promised Volcker that he would work in Switzerland to make changes to the secrecy laws that had baffled American you know, law enforcement for many years. The money got to Switzerland. It basically, they clammed up and didn't know anything. So, you know, and after that, I, I got into the business and I told somebody I was gonna write a book and I was gonna title it, This Shit Really Happened. And the guy said, you're young, you don't understand. This shit always happens. <laughs> yeah. And that turned out to be true. I had, you know, every engagement I had, there were twists and turns. When people are in financial trouble, they do crazy things, they're not yeah. honest. Um, it's a very, very interesting career. Um, so did you have writing a book then about this? <laughs> not, not, never did. Um, there were three times I ran um, publicly traded corporations or listed companies, I think you call them here, yep. um, that I was brought in um, by a board that was basically being told by their banks, you got to get rid of the person in charge, but they didn't want to take who the bank offered. Um, and in two of those, I ended up, um, I ended up having to take somebody, you know, out of the business. You know, I walk in with security and tell them you, you're you're leaving right now. Some really devious things that I, you know, I ran across. Pretty tense days. And at one point, I was a trustee in, in in a conclusion of a bankruptcy. And at one point, I controlled under this trust for the benefit of the creditors. Two 18-hole golf courses, a nine-hole golf course, an airport, a convention center, and about 800 commercial lots in uh, on Lake Travis in Texas. And um, I, they were taken into the trust from um, a, a Japanese uh, company that owed us a whole lot of money. Um, and we eventually had to, uh, in the early one morning, go take out their manager uh, with the sheriff with us and take over those uh, those pieces of property. Mm. That's some tense times. One of my more interesting times was I did a workout and turnaround for Liberty University and for people that uh, in the United States would probably recognize that name. It was the premier um, uh, 
ministry of Jerry Falwell, well-known American evangelist. Really an interesting, interesting guy. And he managed to get himself deep, deep in, into debt as well. Anyway, those are a few of the engagements that I did. That, and I've got more stories, but we probably want to move on to something else so we don't run out of time. <laughs> I could certainly listen to, to your stories for, for um, hours on end, I reckon. It's just it was something, you know, obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a big global world out there, and a lot of different things happen, and, and, and people come from lots of different backgrounds, and yourself, uh, yeah, your experiences would be completely different to anyone else that I've ever met so it's uh, it adds to you know quite a good listen and quite yeah. a good you always find out you know some interesting things um, so that's, that's some of some of um, I guess what you sort of got in as far as your career being you know um, and then I guess you want to sort of reflect on your career and, and, and basically you know um, you know managing companies in crisis go through tough situations getting solutions in mm-hmm. place um as far as that as a um, as a career, I mean, obviously you did lots of other things. You, I'm sure you did lots of other jobs as well, and 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 dwelled into that. But is that something that obviously stands out out from everything else that you may have done? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I did that for 32 years. Um, mm. Yeah, it was tough on my family for many years because I would be gone from Monday morning till Thursday night or Friday. And when I was working for a company called Buccino, an associate's, associate's largest crisis management company in the United States, I was all over the country, but uh, I couldn't take that forever. And I ended up with a group of friends that are out of Baltimore, Maryland. We had offices in Richmond, Baltimore, mm. a place in Maine, where else were we, um, Atlanta. Uh, and then I was able to stay much closer closer to home and, uh, and had that career. It was always an exciting profession i never had a boring day at work and so i guess of the of the time that you sort of spent how many years would you've lived in uh from you know where you originally came from oklahoma when you go back yeah. uh, when my father finished his phd we left oklahoma for dallas yeah and we lived there a few years um and then went to but pittsburgh where you basically came grew up. back there did you you came back there after london or um well i went back to the university of oklahoma where my father was yeah uh, and I went to school there for two years, and then I went to Ohio State in Ohio, where yep. Cora was. Yeah, yeah. Um, my parents ended up back in Texas, and I've spent a lot of time there um, with them. My brother's still there. Mm. But uh, it's, it's a place that I'm fond of. Brothers and sisters? How many brothers and sisters? I got one brother yep. who um, was career Coast Guard, um, taught electronics, and then when he got out of the Coast Guard, he, he um, bought some land next to my, my parents had, uh, had about 350, 400 acres. Um, after, after my dad retired when golf was bought by Chevron and he was raising uh, purebred limousine cattle. Limousine is a, is a French breed and you know, well known for putting on weight in the, in the pasture as opposed to being sent to um, you know like a feed, feed yard where they just cram them with corn and also birthing easily. So he went there and he's, um, he's been a rancher there for quite a while. He's, he's, he's um, 67 now and his herd's down to probably 20 cows and he's ready to, he's ready to get out of it. But, um, so you you probably live in Texas. What do you say lives in Texas? Uh, I got Now we got let me, let me turn this off. Yeah, yeah he, my, my brother does live in, live, live in Texas, and uh, we usually fly to New Zealand through, um, through Houston and get to see him once or twice a year, at least. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah. 
As far as all the different places in, in America, which what what are the I guess the fondest places to spend time in? Dang it. I thought I turned this off. <laughs> it's okay. Yes. Um. No, oh, fondest places. Well, I loved living in Virginia. Richmond, Virginia is just it was a wonderful place to to live and raise children. You know, it was a, a, a city that had lots and lots of culture, but it wasn't. Uh, it didn't have the traffic issues you'd have in Atlanta or Houston or you know New York, someplace like like that. Very, very pleasant place to live. And now we have a home on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which is on the Atlantic Ocean, and um, that's just great. We've got a got a home on Currituck Sound, so. We're looking across the sound between the mainland and the uh, barrier islands, which are on the on the ocean there. Wow. Yeah, that's a very pleasant place. Though, you know, we've had a couple of storms, you know, hurricanes that have caused caused a lot of, caused some damage, to be honest with you. But mm. we've been going down there for 25 years, and there have been two storms that uh, frightened us quite a bit. Um, one did some damage, probably about $40,000 worth of damage, mostly to docks and bulkheads in, in our yard. But, you know, out of 20-some years, that ain't bad. The insurance is expensive, but it's a great place to, to live and, and retire. We spend about half the year there now and half here in Queenstown. Mm. So with the, obviously, uh, we'll talk about Queenstown, but um, I guess as far as uh, Rotary is concerned, obviously that's how we've met, we've met right. in the... Uh, the Rotary Club here in Queenstown. Both of us, we haven't been here um, very long when it comes to the Queenstown uh, Rotary Club. Obviously, it's a, it's a fantastic club. We've had a, a couple of uh, president and president-to-be on the podcast already. Um, so tell us about, uh, I guess, your your first involvement in, in Rotary. I think I think you said uh, Cora uh, probably first got in Rotary before you did. And so how did this yeah. all happen? She joined um, a, a Rotary Club in Richmond, Virginia, called the Bonaire uh, Rotary Club, and she had her office you know, like ten, two tenths of a mile from where they would meet. So she joined and got very active in that club. And I had other things I was interested in, you know, in, in doing. Um, and she kept wanting me to join. Uh, and in in the United States, at least in our district, people go through the ranks. They start as uh, secretary and then they go to treasurer and then they go to vice president and then the president yeah she was treasurer yeah she was struggling with uh, that and then interestingly enough we were talking about accounting systems that they had quickbooks and they had made a mess of it so i took over that even though i wasn't a member um <laughs> but as soon as she became you know she was president-elect i um i joined and i've been a rotarian now for probably 10 11 years yeah and uh, it was a great club um and my wife being so active in it, we would go to district conferences, which were always a blast. And always, we've, uh, yeah, we've been to international conferences um, yeah. in uh, Copenhagen, um, Atlanta, place. and Los Angeles. And all three of those were one, wonderful events with yeah. great speakers. I mean, 20,000 people in a hall is pretty, pretty incredible. And, that is uh, incredible. Yeah. It's like watching a basketball game, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's um, a huge jumbotron, the people speaking. If you don't get there early, they, yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. halfway back there. You, you're going to watch the screen the whole time rather than mm. the people on the stage. We, I've had great, great experiences with Rotary, great, great service. It's... Um, you know, it's an organization with some real values. And interestingly enough, you say I'm a member of the Queenstown Rotary Club. We, we've paid full dues and we participate as much as we can, but International Rotary will not let us be members of two clubs at the same time. Yep. So when we arrived, we were already members of the club in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. The first flight 
yeah. Rotary Club in Kitty Hawk. And so we couldn't officially join. We're trying to decide now which one we will put our loyalty to <laughs> and maybe become a, you know, a full-time yeah. member, regular member in Queenstown and sort of a visiting member in, in the Outer Banks like we're doing, doing here. But it's a great club here. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I've been impressed with this club. Well, you know, even well before we joined, we we sort of came along to, um, and you, you may have done the same thing. If you when you've came here on a on a holiday in the past, you know, we we sort of stepped in and gone into a rotary meeting, mm-hmm. rotary changeover that I had here a couple of years ago, um, and that's how you get to it's just you know you get a good feel and yeah, this is this is for you know this is for us sort of thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's really really nice. Um, but you, I think. Um, my understanding, uh, Jim, is that uh, you and Cora have obviously got other family that live here in the area as well. Mm. And um, tell us about, uh, I guess, everybody sort of coming across from the States to here. When it, when did that all start? When was the right. first time one of your family made the big the big move? Well, my uh, middle child, Abigail, was backpacking around Australia and New Zealand. And I don't know if it still exists, but they're... At that time, there was a bus with a little trailer behind it. You'd load your bicycles and backpacks in there. And it made a circle around the South Island. You'd get on and get off. You paid a fee whenever you wanted to. She was the last person on the bus one night and got to talking to the driver. And she said, you know, I've never wakeboarded. I'd really like to give that a try. Is there anywhere around here? And he said, well, I got a mate up in Kaikoura where we're going to next. And he said, "Um, let's go see. So he just pulled his bus up there and they spent the night. And my, my daughter met Fraser McKenzie, um, and two weeks later, I mean, the bus had gone on, but she was still there, <laughs> and they developed quite a relationship. Um, but they went separate ways. She came back to the United States to go to law school, and Fraser worked. Um, I guess he'd been back from Australia by then. He worked in in uh, London and Scotland, and after her second year in law school, they got married, and. Um, you want to pause that for one second? Yeah. yeah. Cora. So we're back. Yeah. So Abigail um, and Fraser got married her last year in law school, and they lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, where the school is. And um, Fraser uh, worked there as a as a carpenter. He's a very very skilled um, chippy, I guess they call him over here. And after uh, law school, they came back here, and Fraser had a business doing remodeling um, and, and additions onto homes. And Abby practiced law first at um, Mac Todd, and then later at Barry and Co. She practiced. Um, I've heard of Mac Todd here yeah. too. Yeah. And so she she was practicing both uh, real estate and immigration law. Um, and after the Christchurch Church earthquake. Uh, back, yep. Yep. There was uh, there's a interesting way people organize home building in, in New Zealand and in Australia with, with franchises, and uh, David Reed is one of those, which gives them national buying contracts and you know a guarantee that if anybody any franchisee goes broke, the franchisor will complete the house and some other things that really make sense. Well, the guy in Queenstown left, went up to Christchurch, and thinking he would get tons of business after the earthquake. Yeah, and he wasn't doing anything here. And the franchisor told him he needed to either return to Queenstown and get after it, or he needed to give up the franchise. So I came over and we negotiated a purchase of that business, and. Um, and then from there, we went through, of course, really hard times in 08, 09, 
but since then it's been so that's pretty much the story of my uh, my older daughter um, she's been married for 14 years she has two children Hatton who we call Hattie and Hollyford who we call Holly and they're six and eight eight and six so they're one of the main reasons we're here is to be with them my younger daughter um, got a finance degree and a master's of accounting degree at Tulane University in um, Louisiana went to work for Deloitte which is one of the you know big three or four accounting firms and yeah. worldwide firms yeah. in Washington DC where she was on the um, audit of Freddie Mac which and I mean, uh, Fannie Mae was a big national mortgage um, company that's chartered by the United States government with a balance sheet, believe it or not, bigger than the U.S. Federal Reserve and some others. So she never had a downtime. She was just working, you know, 60, 70 hours a a week and getting burned out. Um, And uh, her older sister did some business with a Deloitte partner. Um, I think he's from down in Dunedin. And asked him, you know, what about my little sister? And he said, well, she's been trained by Deloitte in the U.S. I'll put her to work tomorrow. So she resigned from Deloitte U.S. and came over here and went to work for Deloitte. She had a six-month contract. After two months, they gave her a full-time employment. And uh, she went from, she was the only auditor in Queenstown, which is kind of interesting. Deloitte audits all the schools, the airport, Millbrook, and, and some others. And she was, you know, this young, young very young accountant, you know, basically the, the lead on all of those, those audits. It was, it was challenging in a different way. She had a lot of balls in the air, but she didn't have, you know, the long, long hours. Um, she just recently started to work at the, uh, at the uh, Queenstown Airport where she's an analyst, a business analyst for um, you know, landing fees, cargo fees, all the, um, you know, private vendors, the rental car companies that pay to the airport and cafes and so forth. So she just started that job. She's real happy with it. So that's how I came to be in Queenstown. She's um, got a, a man in her life that I don't know if they're calling each other partners yet or not, but they're pretty, they look, they seem quite comfortable. So I think I'm going to have two daughters here forever. Yep. And as long as we can, we'll go back and forth between the United States and uh, in Queenstown. Yeah, so that, I guess that it's a good synopsis of the connection that you have uh, with Queenstown. If you sort of reflect on where it is and how beautiful of a place it is, what and what what activities you like doing in, for recreation here? Yeah. Tell us about what you enjoy about Queenstown. Uh, some of the things that really mm. appeal to you. Well, it's probably the most beautiful place in the world. I mean, I've been in many, many places in the world, and this is truly, you know beautiful and livable i mean there are places that are more stunning but you know you're out in the wilderness or you know some place where it's you know in the winter it's minus 10 or something but anyway this is gorgeous um we love to travel around new zealand we we love the wineries there's a lot of great restaurants um i didn't take up golf till i retired five years ago but i love to play golf my son-in-law is a, a keen um gunsman he's very very good with a shotgun sporting yeah. clays um, he's taken up long range shooting. Um, so I, you know, I spend time with him doing those things. Yeah. Uh, I, I, um, I yet, believe it or not, I've yet to snow ski here, but I brought my ski clothes this time. They're here for next winter. Um, but we love to ski. We do that a lot in the United States. I love to scuba dive, but, um, the water here is too bloody cold for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like warmer water, but I sure enjoy the uh, craze that Fraser pulls up out of the out of the cold water wow. pretty regularly. Um, 
So that's another thing we, we share as a family. If we can get to some place like Vanuatu, <laughs> we're, we're all under there together. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, I'm on top in the boat waiting for them to come up. So whereabouts in, um, in the, if you were back in the States, where, whereabouts would be the ideal place to ski? Well, there's so many good places. Uh, Colorado's got a bunch of, you know, world-known resorts. Um, you know, and I've skied out there in just about all of them. You know, one of my favorite is Breckenridge. Uh, very, very family-friendly place. Um, but also when you get over into the Sierra Nevada mountains, you know, around Reno in, in California, Squaw Valley where the Winter Olympics were one time. Um, okay. uh, Heavenly, there's just a bunch of resorts there. But on the East Coast, about the, the, the closest places we go to is a place called Snowshoe in West Virginia. And it has a relatively short season. They'll be lucky to have to get open by Christmas. They usually do barely. And, you know, early March, they're pretty much done. But it's a short drive. It's about a three-and-a-half, four-hour drive um, and really a lovely place. So that's where we ski in, on the East Coast. Yeah. If you sort of um, <clears throat> look, at, look at those particular uh, – is, is it like the, the air is like fresh uh, in those sort of um, resorts and ski areas that you go to in America? Like, like in Queenstown, or is it is it a different sort of feel the when, the air, when you're sort of breathing in the air? Um, I think Queenstown is probably pretty similar to um, Snowshoe. Yep. And that it doesn't have all that long of a season, um, and the runs are about about the same in in, in length. Mm. The resorts in Colorado and California. I mean, you'll be on a on a chairlift or a or a gondola or a you know, yep. cable car for you know, 15 minutes, and you're halfway up the mountain. And yeah. then you'll go on up on a chairlift, and you may not come all the way to the bottom of the mountain till the end of the day. Mm. And, you know, there's restaurants and things on the top and in the middle. So those resorts allow you to really spread out oh, and yeah. have nice long runs. Um, you know, and there's all sorts of, you know, different skill qualities. I used to ski. Sometimes I would ski a black diamond, which would is like our second to work, hardest. But now I'm pretty much blue and green. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so I guess so. Queenstown. We we've spoken a bit about how lovely this is, and and obviously, can you see? You probably can see yourself here majority for for the rest of your life. Do you think anywhere from four to six months? You know, depending um, a year. I mean, yep. some years we'll be here yep. eight months and back in the states four, and then vice versa. Yeah, it kind of depends. But I mean, we'll reach a. We're seventy years old. We'll reach a point where you know that 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 travels a long haul. Yeah, it is a long haul. And, and at that point, you know, if we can't travel, we'll have to decide where we want to be, either yeah. in New Zealand or the States, and that'll be it. But, you know, hopefully that's 10 years away, and in the interim we're going to have the best time we can with our grandchildren and our children and enjoy them. Yes. Um, so what do you think about, uh, I guess, the way the countries that, you know, New Zealand, how that sort of works? It's obviously a lot different to, to America, right. a lot different political systems. In Australia, New Zealand versus America, we've recently just had the um, the election over in the states, and that's been a fairly crazy uh, ride, hasn't it, for everybody in America? It, it has. It's um, it's a mess, and you know, I have a hard time talking about politics with um, people in New Zealand, and this has just gotten worse over the years because your news is coming from your national TV one. Yeah. And from the BBC, and that is one side of a story. Mm. Um, and neither of them will carry stories that are, you know, that are 
show Donald Trump in a, in, a, in a good light, and they will kill stories that show Joe Biden or the Democrats in a bad light. Yeah. So you get a, a really um, superficial and very biased look at it. Now, I've met people that read deeply, and they know you know, what's, what's going on and a lot more. And I'll just give you an example. I think it was mm. yesterday, the day before, um, TV One saying Donald Trump suffers major blow before the Supreme Court of the United States. What happened was the one Justice Alito in charge of the circuit, which this case is coming up from, refused uh, or denied what's called a preliminary injunction. They asked that he order the states to stop certifying elections until the hearing. Well, that's one judge, and because he's in charge, it's a basically a unanimous opinion. So it didn't do anything to the case. The case hasn't been decided, but it was put forward as some major defeat. And that's the kind of skewing and nonsense that unfortunately has mm. left... Um, you know, impossible to talk, you know, with people uh, about some of it. But I don't know. I mean, do you want my thoughts on what's happened and where yeah, we're going? Yeah, I guess, I guess my thoughts, because obviously when, when we, you know, back in New Zealand, if we were trying to look at what's happening, we're certainly very confused as to what's actually happened in this election. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a different election to any other that we've ever seen. Um, you know, we're seeing a president... Um, uh, where we had some crazy swings as far as whether he was going to get in or not. Um, the voting, the, mm. the odds were all over the place. The voting, the way they counted it and the way it's coming across, it just, it just it's hard to fathom what sort of happened. And, and, well, it's, and, it's, and it, we've got sort of a crazy reaction from him in these Twitter posts and all this sort of... It's just, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, people that want to, you know, they go off on Donald Trump, and I say, you know, what you need to do is stop reading his tweets or listening to him, because mm. it's just going to drive you crazy and, yeah. up, and upset you. Yeah. And that's that's him being Donald Trump, yeah. but that's not what his administration is is doing. Mm. And what happened in this election? I think we can lay partly at the door of COVID. Mm. Um, because of COVID, uh, a number of states governors. And in a couple of cases, courts ordering the um, the, the states to, to basically ignore their election laws. And if you do an absentee ballot in the United States, you have to apply for it on an application you sign. They send you the ballot, you stick it inside another envelope you sign, and they compare those signatures and the signature on your driver's license to make sure you are who you are, and then the ballot's taken out of that envelope, which is now anonymous and dropped in the pile. Well, they decided that because of COVID, people wouldn't come to the polls, couldn't come to the polls, so they mailed ballots to every single name on their registers. And we know for a fact, many of these places, they haven't purged their rolls in 25, 30 years or more. So there's literally thousands of dead people on those rolls. There are literally tens of thousands of people that have moved away and aren't there. So the ballots arrive at apartment buildings or wherever they are. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. So it's turned into a, a real chaos because it, it, it's clear that many of these ballots, um, you know, they're, they're just not, they're not legitimate. And you've got some precincts in places like in, in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where the turnout was over 100%. Well, that's impossible. Yeah. Including, that's 100%, including people that were dead and moved away. So yeah. uh, it's just ripe for, for bad actors. And at this point, um, you know, Trump hasn't made, gotten very far in the courts. And, and my view is, in the end, he, he probably won't. But there's over a thousand sworn affidavits of people that that and and also now there's um, security cameras of of basically um, the Republicans in Philadelphia and Detroit being 
told to leave. They forced out. Yep. They couldn't watch the polling. Yep. And in one case, they put paper over the window so they couldn't even look in and, and see. Well, all of that raises this specter, which yep. I think at yep. this point makes it, um, you know, for, for three, I mean, back up, for three years we heard from, you know, about Trump. Oh, my God, he colluded with the Russians. He's a Russian agent, on and on and on and on. <laughs> well, they spent $45 million and put Robert Mueller in some real – rabid attack dog lawyers that went after everything they could. In the end, Robert Mueller said he couldn't find any U.S. person, let alone a Trump person, that yeah. had colluded with any Russian person. Yeah, cool. yeah. After three years. And they used that you know, to delegitimize him um, yeah. to the extent they could. Well, Biden's coming in an even a worse situation. They're, all the yeah. people that voted for Trump are going to say, you know, you, you cheated. There's tens yeah. of thousands. And the problem is the vote was so close. It was like 11,000 in, in Georgia. It mm. was 10,000 in, in um Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, about 80,000, Michigan, I can't remember, 25 or 30,000. Very 000. close. But these are very, very close close numbers. Mm. Um, and frankly, Georgia and, and Milwaukee could probably be overturned if they could figure out people that were dead and moved away. Mm. And in Georgia, felons can't vote, and you know, they've already found a bunch of them that voted. So, mm. you know, you, you have chaos. I think at the end, Biden becomes president. But um, he, he goes in with a real cloud over his head. And the other cloud he had a few weeks before the election, uh, his son's laptop contents, he, he'd left it stupidly. But this guy's a, a basically a, a, a wild drug addict. I mean, you know, he, yeah. he womanizes. He's, he's not a good guy. Stupidly left his computer, and um, he never came back to get it, so it became the property because he didn't pay his bill and abandoned it. And the guy gave it to some people. Um, <laughs> it turns out he'd already given it to the FBI. Yeah. Uh, and why they didn't go through, I don't know. But anyway, there's a lot of damaging stuff in there, right? And the major newspapers not only didn't run it, and the major um, networks didn't run it, but Facebook and Twitter both wouldn't let anybody talk about it. New York Post broke the story. They closed, Twitter closed their account so they couldn't talk about it on yeah. Twitter. So, you know, that sounds okay. And they kept saying, well, we can't verify this, which, you know, is, is a bit nonsense because they've let all sorts of wild, crazy things yeah. run on other people, yeah. even stories that are attributed to anonymous sources, right? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to verify that at all. So they basically chose a side, but, you know, drip, drip, drip. It kept People kept coming out and vetting it, and, well, that's nonsense, but these three are real. Mm. And then not long before the election, um, a guy sat down who comes across enormously credible, and if the Republicans hold the Senate, you're going to see him under oath. And what he said in that was, yeah, they set up this company, and they took well. They took over an asset management company, the Bidens and um, Hunter Biden and a couple of his buddies. Fired all the managers, took it over, and then they got an infusion of over a billion dollars from communist party. And I mean, the the Chinese, the Chinese government basically gave them a billion dollars for an investment fund. Well, they didn't know what they were doing, so they hired this guy who's got a stellar record. I mean, so far, as much as they might try, they haven't come up with any dirt on this guy. You know, military career, went to a military academy, I think. You know, great education, good business experience. They hired him to run it. And he said, um, I met with Joe Biden when he was vice president in a hotel in Los Angeles, which they verified by looking at the um, Secret Service records. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it, his thing, he said, yeah, I sat there with Joe Biden, and we, we talked about the ownership. And Joe Biden um, owns, either in his own name or through somebody else, I mean, he said he owned 5%. So there you have now somebody about to become president of the United States who, you know, what's 5% of a billion, man? I mean, you know. Yeah. 
it's uh, it, it's it's a lot of money, and and for far far less than that, you know, they went after Trump, they impeached him, and all sorts yeah. of things. Yeah, I don't know if the hypocrisy is that deep and that thick, but uh, whatever targets Trump, you know, gave them to shoot at, Joe Biden has given them even as much or more. So, yeah. I think we're in for a tumultuous time. Down yeah, I the guess road. I guess to end the United States talk um, is I guess where the country sort of. You know, the, the the thing that we're seeing right now is we're still getting, and I didn't expect it to sort of be like this right now at the end of of December 2020 that uh, they would be getting record number of uh, uh, cases of you know coronavirus yeah. and deaths and uh, obviously in Australia and New Zealand we've been incredibly lucky, uh, but obviously you know it's it's been managed in in a way that it's that, that it's helped. Um, it, it's you know it's going to be a bit of a tough couple of years, I think, for the United States. Well, it's tough few um, years. Um, well, you know, sort of... well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, politically, it's going to be chaotic. Yeah. But we have, yeah. you know, the health and education are the prerogatives of the state governments. Yeah. So we've got 50 states with 50 governors and 50 plans on how to fight COVID and wide open borders. I mean, it's just, it's... Something you weren't going to be able to control. So, I think if the vaccine gets out there, it'll start yeah. coming around. But yeah. frankly, in a lot of these areas, they've been essentially under lockdown since March, and a lot of people have just had it. They're starting literally to ignore and defy the state governors. And uh, for example, in California, yeah. uh, Gavin Newsom just entered a very strict other lockdown order, and basically, the sheriffs of Southern California, the county sheriffs charged with law enforcement, just said, we're not doing this anymore. This is unconstitutional. You can't do this. So, you know, you're starting to see a real breakdown. I'm not sure how that ends, but it, it isn't it isn't good, you know, when law enforcement officers are telling people we're not going to enforce your edicts because they're unlawful. Mm. You know, it's... Um, I've heard of a lot of people moving away from California because of Newsom. Um, well, California's a mess. There's no other way to put it. It's just a big, big mess i mean very high taxes the homeless situation i mean especially around the la area yeah la san francisco la spends over 200 million dollars a year on homelessness and they still have 25 or thirty thousand people and i mean honest to god if they set up a tent or living in a car in front of your house you can't get rid of them yeah and you'll see needles on the front sidewalk i mean you'll see people you know urinating in your yard and all that kind of thing just unbelievable they won't they won't deal with it so there's a lot wrong there's a lot wrong and a lot of people are you know and there's there's a there's a uh, parameter people watch believe it or not there's a company in the united states called u-haul and they rent trucks and 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 trailers to people that move themselves self-moving right yeah. and give them the pads and the dollies and everything the cost of renting a truck to move from california say to texas it's five times higher than it is to go from Texas to California. And the reason is all the trucks are stacking up in Texas. And they're probably almost to the point now where they give it to you free if you just get it back to California so they can rent it. Yeah. It's, it's that bad. New York's also facing this. New Jersey, people fleeing. Okay. Going, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's been a bit quieter on the New York front, uh, but it's they obviously started off the, yeah. the start of COVID. They were hit the worst. Uh, yeah, and, and it's building back up. And, you know, yeah. it, it was the governor of California was on the news every day, and he was complaining. And, and in short order, the United States Army built a 1,000-bed hospital in the Javits Convention Center. And um, the United States Navy has two hospital ships with 1,000 beds each. It's one of those interesting things about Donald Trump. 
um, he wanted to go to New York, and the admirals told him it was in for refitting and um, being resupplied, and it would take a month. He said, you've got one, one week to get that ship under sail, and by God, he said, if you don't, I'll get new admirals. Um, and and they, they did it. And you know, it's one of those things. Trump, honest to God, he'll just drive you crazy with his tweets, and he's, and he'll he'll come across as being such narcissistic. I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Yeah. But if you listen to him long enough, like in these COVID things, then he'll turn around and say, and "Here's my team, and this guy is wonderful." And come up here, Bob, yeah. and he, he yeah. praises these people. Yeah. Then he leaves the room, and the professionals stay another 45 minutes and explain to you what's going on. Yeah. But. Um, his administration has gotten an, an enormous amount done, like him or not like him. Yeah. And I would tell your listeners, if you want to understand why people voted for Trump, uh, go into YouTube and watch a video from Bill Maher, M-A-H-E-R. He's a comedian, has a show on um, on YouTube. And he's, he's pretty far left, and he hates Donald Trump. But he lays out quickly, there's some profanity in it, very quickly, though, in a few minutes, exactly you know, why people who personally don't like Trump would nevertheless vote uh, for him. Interesting. And, okay. That's, that's and, really some good, some good insights. But it's, it's, it's policy. Um, and I'll just wrap it up with a couple of, you know, quick examples. I mean, the Trump administration has reversed over, I mean, just tens of thousands of regulations. And we have, you know, a big government in the United States, and the job of these bureaucrats is to regulate, right? Under Obama, they regulate, they were uber regulators. And to my point of view, they were throwing sand in the gears of commerce with both hands as fast as they could. And they're going to go back to doing that. They're going to reverse all that. Well, that's one reason the American economy began to boom is he got that off their backs. But personally, this is one thing people you know don't understand. He got uh, crosswise with our European allies very quickly. And uh, every president in my lifetime has asked the Europeans to pay their treaty-obligated commitments, financial commitments to NATO, very politely, you know, Obama, the Clinton, Clinton, both Bushes, and they were politely ignored. Donald Trump asked them, they said no, and he began to threaten them and call them names. Well, guess what? He got the money. Yes. And that's one of the things that people look at Trump. And I'll give you one more, and this is why the middle class and the lower middle class are so fond of him. He hasn't, he's the only president for a long, long time that has not got us involved in a war. I mean, both the Bushes got us involved in the Middle East, Clinton in Serbia, Obama in Libya, and then his fecklessness in Syria resulted in a disaster there. Donald Trump hasn't done that. We're almost out of Afghanistan. He's pulled us out of Somalia, and he's drastically reduced the troops in, um, in Iraq. Our military is a volunteer military, and the rank and file of that military comes basically from the lower middle class and the lower class because it's seen as an opportunity. Somebody can you know, have no means in life but go in the military, and in a few years they know how to fix diesels. I mean, they've worked on tanks or whatever, right? So those are the people and why that, those classes love him because he also, and then I'll quit after this, he early on got very crosswise with the people in the Pentagon and the generals. And... Uh, and he, he, he got rid of people like um, Rex Tillerson at State, replaced him with Pompeo, and got rid of Madison and replaced him with somebody else, Mattis, at Secretary of Defense. They took him over there, and they gave him a slideshow, and, and were trying to convince him that, you know, you're pissing off our allies in Europe, and that's not good, and, you know, you're stepping on all these toes. And he asked one simple question. He said, what's your plan to win the war in Afghanistan? We've been there for 17 years. And they told him, well, we don't have a plan to win. It's a holding action. And he said, you mean we're going to spend billions of dollars a year and lose the lives of young Americans for holding action? And they said, that's right. And then he said, you're a bunch of whiners and, and uh, losers. 
which you tell a general that ain't exactly the right thing. You know, so, but he, and when he went to Afghanistan one time, he only asked, they had meetings scheduled for him. He said, the only meeting I insist I have is I want to sit down with enlisted men with no officers in the room. I want to know what's happening from the people who are getting shot at. Yeah. You know, and those are the kind of things that endear Trump to people, despite, you know, his horrible rhetoric and his horrible personality. Yeah. Is, you know, there's some, some foundation there. And with Joe Biden, a lot of this is going to reverse. Trump's made enormous progress in the Middle East, by the way. Yeah. Um, in fact, today, Morocco and Israel just normalized relations. That's about the fifth Arab country that's done it. Um, that'll probably be reversed. They'll probably, U.S. will probably go back into the agreement with, um, with um, Iran. But what disturbs me most is I think our biggest problem in the United States is um, the really poor quality of schools in the inner city of the United States. Most of these inner city school districts are you know, predominantly minority, 75%. Most of these cities and these districts have been controlled by Democrat and African-American Democrat politicians for 30 years. And you know they, they, they need to do better. And one of the big problems is the teachers' unions. And I understand that's a problem here in New Zealand. The grievance procedures they've gotten is harder to fire a bad teacher than a bad policeman, and we have some problems with some bad cops. And everything's seniority. You know, you don't get raises or promoted for merit or hard work or anything else. And they're against the out-of-the-box solutions. We call them charter schools, vouchers, and, and homeschooling. And Biden's going to go. He, he'll probably he may, he's talked about the president of the teachers union becoming secretary of education, and he said his department would be teacher centric, not student centric. Teacher centric, you got that? So, you know, those are the kind of things that people feared and would vote for Trump, even though they couldn't. You know, they hated his guts as a person. Mm-hmm. So that's you know, it's a lot more complicated than what you hear on the news. Yeah. And um, anyway, I could go on a long time. That's right. probably more. Than I mean, we could sp- we could certainly speak about how to fix America's problems, and you know, we'd be here for another few weeks and oh, yeah. not get too far. <laughs> so, um, I do I do appreciate your um, you know, obviously. You know, obviously, basically, what uh, what you've sort of uh, told told the our audience here today that about uh, you know everything to do in your you know bits and pieces, some stories out of your career. Um, I guess why you like coming across to mm-hmm. to Queenstown and, and maybe possibly calling this place home for longer term. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, um, we, you know, I do know that obviously you're very passionate about. Uh, the way things, you know, working back from where you come from, and uh, and obviously where the political system yeah. is is at the moment, and and some really good insight that a lot of people in in this area probably wouldn't know. So, um, thank you very much, Jim, uh, for yeah. all of that. Anything sort of final? Any anything final that you wanted to yeah. sort of finish on? I would say, you know, I, I love New Zealand as a country, and I think the people here should be very very thankful for not only are they an island nation which can you know lock out something like covid but you know most of the people here are um you know by and large they're european heritage they're all on the same page and even the other people that come here you know fit in very easily you don't have the tensions and the divisions um you know it used to be in america people didn't vote because it didn't matter if it was a democrat or republican they weren't that different and I look back at New Zealand, I think, yeah, you know, there's differences between labor and, and national here, but you all get along. You talk things out. You get yeah. things done. You don't, you don't dwell on the divisions. And, uh, you know, the United States looks horrible, but honest to God, I've traveled in a lot of the world. The United States is better than most of it, and New Zealand's better than the United States in terms of, you know, a, a place to live in harmony. Mm. 
Yeah, thanks very much for your, for your time here you're on very, a Friday you're welcome. afternoon, Jim. It's been a pleasure. We'll get this uh, uploaded and uh, better share it around to to all my audience. And uh, you do the same if you'd like. It's up okay. to you. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you very much. And uh, and uh, have a great Christmas and New Year. All right, thanks. Merry Christmas.